Parents know kids aren't just little adults. That's why I take mine to the one place with world-renowned doctors who treat children and only children, Boston Children's Hospital. See why U.S. News and World Report ranks us the number one pediatric hospital at bostonchildrens.org parents. From WBUR Boston and Slate, hello and welcome to The Checkup, Greatest Hits Edition, our solidly reported and also somewhat opinionated take on health news you and your family can use. I'm Carrie Goldberg, co-host of the Common Health blog at WBUR.org. And I'm Rachel Zimmerman, also co-host of the Common Health blog. Hey, Rachel. Hey, Carrie. Well, summer is officially here, and so we present to you our summer podcast series, The Checkup Greatest Hits Edition. Each week, we'll be discussing hot topics in health. From sex to anxiety to the tyranny of diets. And we call today's episode, Scary Food Stories. As in, scary stuff food can do to you. Uh Mm Uh-oh. A little later in this podcast, we'll be talking about that viral vegetable, kale, and whether kale devotees could have too much of a good thing. Also, a cautionary tale about chia seeds. But first, so good. And yet, so bad. Hmm, sounds like G Love has replaced special sauce with energy drinks. But Rachel, I have to say, you were ahead of me on this one. You homed in much earlier than I did on this growing drumbeat, warning that sugar doesn't just cause cavities and pack on pounds, that it's much more insidious than that it's even actually maybe in some ways toxic. And and addictive. addictive. Some researchers are even comparing sugar to another white crystal, cocaine, and saying it may be even more addictive. So this is James DeNicolantonio. He's a cardiovascular research scientist at St. Luke's Midam. America Heart Institute in Kansas City. And here he is speaking on the show here and now. Well, what's really scary is the animal studies. So when you look at animal studies comparing uh, sugar to cocaine, sugar is actually more addictive than cocaine. Even when you get the rats hooked on IV cocaine, once you introduce sugar, almost all of them switch to the sugar. That's how addictive it is because the reward surpasses the reward of that of cocaine. So James DeNicolantonio recently published a review finding that eating sugar poses more risk of heart disease than eating salt, that sugar makes our blood pressure really spike right after we eat it, and that's not good. He also says sugar triggers that delicious pleasure chemical in our brain, dopamine, and the brains of sugar addicts react kind of like the brains of drug addicts. So you can actually feel withdrawal from sugar, right? That kind of hypoglycemic shakiness? Right. I think many of us are familiar with that shaky feeling. And Danicola Antonio explains that if you're among the 80 million Americans who have prediabetes... What happens is, is when you ingest sugar, you end up overshooting your insulin because you're less responsive to the insulin when you have prediabetes. And what, what happens is your glucose levels drop so suddenly that you get low blood sugar. And now you're shaky, you're jittery, you feel bad, you feel nauseating, you're sweating... And 
what happens is, is your insulin levels are so high that the, the only macronutrient that your body can use at that time is sugar or carbohydrate. So you're in this vicious cycle of if you have prediabetes, a lot of times you're, you're, you're ingesting sugar, your blood sugar goes low, then you crave it because you're having these side effects. So not only are you having withdrawal symptoms, but you're literally in a physical state that's predisposing you to consume added sugars. Insidious. Wow. Really scary. And maybe what's even more insidious is that unlike a cocaine or a heroin habit, it seems like you can be addicted to sugar without even realizing it. Exactly. And that's just what happened to Terry Schrader, a practicing primary care doctor, no less, who wrote a piece for us titled Confessions of a Physician Sugar Addict. She discovered to her own shock that even though she'd thought she was doing everything right health-wise, she was a sugar addict. Well, first of all, I think I'll call myself a recovering sugar sugar <laughs> addict. How's that? It did take me by surprise. I mean, it took me a minute or more to make the link because I wasn't thinking my sugar consumption was up at all. But I did notice a few things. One, um, like many people, I had to have the plaque scraped vigorously off my teeth every six months. I didn't necessarily link that to sugar right away. But two, uh, my triglycerides were up. And three, I did notice... Uh, few hours after I eat, which is not uncommon, I was hungry, but I was not just hungry, I was a little shaky and hungry. And then just with the highs and lows of what sugar and too much sugar intake does to us, I think you can just kind of notice it in your own physiology. And Rachel, I have to say, Dr. Schrader inspired me and I started noticing that too. I became much more conscious of these really intense cravings that would hit me, especially in the afternoons and after meals. Right. A little more honey in the tea. A little bite of biscotti. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And she described feeling this in her brain, too, right? She sure did. Certainly, there are physical as well as psychological reactions to sugar. And we know our neurotransmitters, our dopamine goes up when we have glucose. That's why we like it. But I think what happens is it's a short-term gain. Our brain lights up, and it wants more a few hours later. If you drink a soda, or what I was drinking, which had 32 grams of sugar in it, you're going to get an immediate high. Your brain loves the glucose, and you're going to feel terrific. An hour or two later, you're going to feel a dip in your blood sugar. And uh, that contributes to sort of how we feel sometimes a few hours after we eat. So Dr. Schrader went through this transformation, this sort of sugar house cleaning. I first noticed in this juice drink I was drinking. It was my little treat. And then I thought, well, I'm going to cut that out. But then I looked at the honey I was putting in my coffee. I was putting maple syrup in my oatmeal. The flavored yogurts have between 20 to 30 grams of sugar in them, added sugar. So I cut that out and went to plain yogurt, added some berries, and just looked at the things I was eating and drinking throughout the day and tried to add them up in terms of added sugar. And we we're all trying to stay under, if we're women, six teaspoons or 24 grams a day. If we're men, we get a little bit more, nine teaspoons or uh, 32 grams. So how's she feeling now? Definitely better. I actually feel good. It's been about <laughs> eight or 10 weeks. I'm not keeping exact track, but I really do feel better. And one of the first things I noticed, which may sound kind of silly, but your teeth are actually smoother. We have a bacteria in our mouth. We have lots of bacteria, but one of them, Streptococcus mutans, loves the sucrose, uses the sugar to help apply the plaque and make it sticky and help eat away our teeth. But I also just felt better, and the cravings for sugar go down pretty quickly. Hmm. You change your taste buds relatively quickly. When you eat an apple, uh, it actually tastes sweet now if you lower those grams of sugar. 
Dr. Schrader also says that after she cut way down on sugar, she lost a little bulge of belly fat. And I'm happy to report that since I've been trying her little experiment, I've definitely lost some of that winter muffin top, too. Ooh, that sounds good. So the basic message is avoid sugar, but especially avoid added sugar. Right. And in fact, the federal dietary guidelines say to limit your added sugars to 10% of your daily calories. Right, which will be a lot easier to do if the FDA gets its way and all food labels have to clearly list added sugar on their packages. Because we can definitely afford to cut some sugar. At last count, each American was eating just about 100 pounds of sugar every year. A hundred pounds of sugar. It feels cloying just to hear that. So I'm really feeling the need to talk about something super virtuous, something very green. Okay, so let's talk about the trendiest vegetable of all. Everyone should eat more kale. It makes you healthier without fail. I tell you with confidence. Rachel, what is that? This song, The Kale Store, comes to us from singer-songwriter Greg Klima, sort of a modern-day Woody Guthrie. He sounds more like a folky, weird Al Yankovic. Is he serious? I mean, a song about kale? Hey, when kale talks, people listen. (laughs) You want evidence? Yep. I'll just point to a post I wrote on the potential dark side of kale, That piece went viral and has been one of the most popular stories on our blog, ever. Well, I know kale is like the most worshipped produce around. It's like the it vegetable for foodies. It's in Gwyneth Paltrow's morning smoothie. It's on the president's menu. I get that. But I think what really grabbed people in your post is this idea that it has a dark side. Now, how, how can that be? Well, right. That's what I thought. How can something that seems so very healthy potentially have an unhealthy side? It turns out that kale, a cruciferous vegetable like bok choy, Brussels sprouts, broccoli, does have the potential, and I underscore potential here, to do harm under certain conditions and in certain people. And it has to do with your thyroid. Just Google hypothyroidism and foods to avoid, and several sites do say, essentially, steer clear of kale. Okay, I have to confess to some dark satisfaction here because kale eating is seen as so darned virtuous. And I'm not that good. So go on, go on. Okay, now add to my horror my own personal (laughs) love of kale, my smug feeling of superiority when I feed my kids kale shakes every morning and I pack them kale chips for snack. And by the way, have you ever seen some of those kale chips? They're like these dried mounds of greenish, brownish stuff And I swear, when I pack them in a baggie, I feel like I'm sending my kid to school with half an ounce of pot. But that's another story. (laughs) That's what you get for being so good. Right. Well, to put it simply, there are many substances that can interfere with the way the thyroid functions. All of these interferences can lead to thyroid problems, notably the condition called hypothyroidism. Which is when your thyroid is underactive, right? Right. So to understand this a little bit better, I spoke with an expert, Dr. Jeffrey Garber. He's chief of endocrinology at Harvard Vanguard Medical Associates here in Boston, and he wrote a recent clinical practice guideline on hypothyroidism in adults. Kale is rich in a substance that when metabolized by an enzyme that's within kale produces thiocyanates that can compete with iodine to get into the thyroid. And it all sounds pretty grim, except that if you cook kale, the threat's virtually eliminated because the enzyme is deactivated in boiling water. But what about smoothies and juices? 
well, I don't know my way around the kitchen. But the recipes that I've seen for making smoothies or juices range from one to two ounces of kale. And if you read about the amount of thiocyanate in that amount, we're talking about 15 milligrams in three ounces or so. So the bottom line is that if you were iodine sufficient, the risk is about nil. Okay. So I asked Dr. Garber if daily chronic munching of raw kale every day for years could lead to changes in the thyroid. If one were to do that, one should make sure they have adequate iodine in their diet. Keep in mind family history. And very simply, if there's any concern, just speak to your doctor about having your thyroid checked. Okay, Rachel. So then in theory, huge amounts of kale could cause problems, but it would be unusual, right? To be safe, Dr. Garber said, if you're totally neurotic and extremely concerned about this, there's one concrete thing you can do. Eat as much raw kale as you possibly can for six weeks and then have your doctor test you. But so really then, like so much advice about food, it comes down to that age-old saying that it's the dose that makes the poison. Meaning rational amounts of kale should be fine. Also, cooking it eliminates the problem altogether. So we should end here by stating the obvious, which is that vegetables are, in general, fabulous for your health. And also, any kind of obsessive extreme diet that includes massive consumption of any single food can, in general, lead to trouble. Yes, this is something I have to remember, personally. Okay, so let's just take a moment here to mention our sponsor. When our son broke his arm, we didn't think he needed special attention. I didn't when I broke mine. But it was easy to see a doctor at Boston Children's Hospital, so we went. They noticed the break was on his growth plate. That meant a little fracture could have been a lot more serious. Now we wouldn't take him anywhere else. No matter what it is, simple or not so simple. Because nothing's more important to us than getting our kid back to being a kid again. See why U.S. News and World Report ranks Boston Children's Hospital the number one pediatric hospital at bostonchildrens.org slash parents. Okay, speaking of obsessions in food, I'd just like to briefly mention another ridiculously trendy food, chia seeds. Ah, the chia seeds, yes. Now, maybe it's just my generation, but the idea of chia seeds as food just seems wrong. Ch-ch-ch-chia. Chia pets, the pottery that grows. It's fun. Soak your chia, spread the seeds, water, and watch it grow. Ch-ch-ch-chia. And now, Duck Dynasty's Chia Willie and Chia Uncle Sai and Chia Ninja Turtles. Chia Pets, the pottery that grows. Well, Carrie, I'm here to tell you that chia seeds are so much more than a decorative craft item. <laughs> I will admit it, I'm a chia devotee. I put them in smoothies, I put them on toast, and they give me this feeling of fullness, and they have this satisfying little crunch to them. Blah. Okay, but they landed one guy in the hospital emergency room fairly recently, right? Why don't you tell us that story? Okay, but one more point here. Chia seeds are good for you. The NIH calls them a rich source of fiber, protein, and heart-healthy omega-3 fatty acids. Okay, duly noted. Okay, so here's the story. Earlier this year, a case report came out that generated headlines. Once again, all these nervous eaters... <laughs> The bottom line of that story is, despite potential health benefits, chia seeds may pose a risk if they are not consumed properly. Chia alert. Chia alert. Right. Okay. So this case was about a 39-year-old man who had swallowed only about a tablespoon of chia seeds followed by a glass of water. And then he ended up spending several hours in the emergency room under anesthesia uh. because apparently... Fun facts about chia seeds, they can absorb 27 times their weight in water. 
And in this guy's case, the seeds expanded and completely blocked his esophagus. Wow. I spoke to Dr. Rebecca Rawl, a gastroenterology fellow in North Carolina, who described the man arriving at the hospital with this feeling of pain at the top of his stomach. He couldn't swallow anything, not even his own saliva, she said, and an upper endoscopy showed that the culprit were these puffed-up chia seeds. Whoa, so puffed-up chia seeds blocking the esophagus. What did that even look like? Well, Dr. Rawl said it was this gel of seeds. The consistency was similar to Play-Doh, not quite solid, but not a liquid either. And she said doctors tried to push this chia mass through to the man's stomach, but because of the consistency, the seeds would just sort of squish around the scope. So finally, they switched to a little baby end scope with a smaller diameter and were able to use the tip of the instrument to push a few seeds at a time into his stomach. So they broke through the chia mass. And then after they did that, he was fine? Yes, a happy ending. Moral, wet your chia seeds before eating or sticking them on a ceramic figurine. (laughs) I mean, the point of all of this is to just be mindful of what you eat and eat in moderation, whether it's a green leafy vegetable or a white crystalline substance. (laughs) I think it was Aristotle who said moderation in all things. And I think our endocrinologist, Dr. Garber, would agree. It sounds like the beginning, the middle, and the end of the discussion to me. (laughs) That's it for this episode of The Checkup. Next time, a sexual reality check for women and men. As in, you may never be too old for sex. Also, surprising news about the range of penis size. Things are bad enough without the size of your organ adding even more misery to the troubles of the world. Right on, right on. And the nature of female desire. Ooh, sounds juicy. (laughs) The Checkup is produced at WBUR, Boston's NPR news station, by George Hicks, who also composed and performed our theme music. The executive editor of WBUR Podcasts is Iris Adler. Andy Bowers and Joel Meyer run Slate Podcasts. I'm Rachel Zimmerman. And I'm Carrie Goldberg. See you next time. See you, Carrie. See you, Rachel. Hello, Panoply Podcast listeners. I'm Sarah Ginsberg. And I'm Elaine Sheldon. And we're the hosts of Panoply's new show, She Does. Audio documentaries that are part biography, part conversation, and all about women in media. Every other week, we ask women writers, filmmakers, directors, photographers, and technologists what makes them tick, their process, their motivations. We dig back into their past to have an open and intimate conversation. We started this show back in January and have since featured a pretty unbelievable cast of women, including Deborah Granick, the Academy Award-nominated director of Winter's Bone, and Anna Sale, the voice of WNYC's popular show, Death, Sex, and Money. Type She Does into iTunes and get into these stories. We have over a dozen episodes just waiting to be heard. But warning, She Does has been known to cause binge listening. Find us online at shedoespodcast.com and on Twitter at shedoespodcast.